0: My guest on episode 11 of Cleaning Up is a leading Australian figure in sustainability and the environment. In fact, you could say that he's the leading Australian figure in sustainability and the environment. If you download his resume, you'll find that it's 35 megabytes, it's worse than mine. He's written two books, he's founded four charities. He's made literally hundreds of episodes of TV shows on business and business's impact on environment and sustainability and climate and so on. He's got uh, hundreds of radio episodes that he's contributed to. Um, he actually had a top 40 hit uh, back in the mists of time, which he's gonna talk about as well. He's an extraordinary guy. So what we're gonna do is I'm gonna get a beer and then we're gonna welcome Mr. John D. into the conversation. So, John, I promised that I'd get a beer. As you can see, I've got myself a Foster's.
1: Mate, that's very sad to see. You know, the only people who drink Foster's are the English. Uh, No one actually drinks it in Australia, but they've done a very good job marketing Foster's to the Brits as an Australian beer. But uh, I'm glad to tell you it's it's breakfast time here, so here's my coffee. Um, I'd I'd rather join you in a glass of wine like we did last time we had dinner, so... um, Unfortunately, it's coffee for me. Well,
0: you know, I've already learned something now that you don't drink Fosters, but we do over here. The learning, I'm sure, will continue for the next uh, uh, just under an hour. So what we're going to do is I'm going to pour this. Um, and meanwhile, could you perhaps just say, how would you describe what is it that you actually are doing today? We'll go back through all of the different bits and pieces that I've got here. But let's start with what is it that you are doing today?
1: One of the most exciting things I'm doing right now is working on the RE100 project, uh, which is run by the Climate Group and CDP, as, as you know. And so my job there is to help run Australian operations, recruit Australian companies. And that's very exciting. Uh, so far, we've managed to get 12 major Australian companies to commit to go 100% renewable by a set date, most of them by 2000 and 25. So that's my uh, my main thing that I do on the energy side. With uh, When it comes to sustainability and social issues, I also run a charity called Do Something. And anyone who wants to check it out, we have our website, uh, which is dosomethingnearyou.com.au. And the idea is that no matter where you live in Australia, you type in your postcode and basically find out what it is that you can do to give back in your local community. And on top of that, I do consulting with companies on energy and sustainability issues and uh, also uh, writing my new book, Smarter Futures, and getting ready now to uh, roll out the first of the Smarter Futures videos. So I've interviewed Lisa Jackson, uh, which is just going out at the moment, and uh, and Lisa is the head, global head of sustainability and social issues at Apple. So uh, quite a varied workload at my end but i don't think i'd have it right. any other way
0: well that sounds like about 35 megabytes of current activities never mind if we get into the the past things but um and and so that's essentially as there's, there's uh, re100 just to clarify those who don't know because there might be some out there that's a group of what is it now about 250 major corporations that are committing to go 100 uh, percent renewable energy in their own uh, operations is that right and that's a that's an international that started I think in the UK with the climate group and uh, um, carbon disclosure project CDP
1: yes indeed we've now got 254 uh, major companies that have committed to go hundred percent renewable with their electricity use by a set date and we've got really big organizations involved you know you, we've got household names like AB and Bev Apple uh, Google uh, Microsoft um, you know, Ikea, Lego. There are many, many major brands. I'm going to show my
0: ignorance. Is this an AB, uh, what is it? AB InBev? AB InBev, and always a bush.
1: I'm actually not sure. I don't think it is. They actually make I don't bun- think it white. is,
0: no. Right. I'm going to be changing brands. There we go. There's another good reason to change brands. It's not authentic and it's not, and they haven't, Foster's has not signed up yet, we think, to RE100. Uh, Okay, so there's some there's but there's a theme there's some themes already that are going to emerge more, but they're already so so you work with business, uh, you're a communicator, you get business to come kind of come along, showcase what they do uh, best. But I want to go back to where all this started because in preparation for this show, I came across your work in with um, for Rock Aid Armenia, and a video with a very young John D. With some very big names uh, backstage, um, and, and that stuff is absolutely extraordinary. So, t- talk us through how did that? How did the, that was the f- the first of your four major charities that you launched, wasn't it? Rock Aid Armenia. How did you how did you get into that?
1: When I was still at the school in England, where I grew up uh, near Shrewsbury, uh, basically I ended up uh running Yes's fan club. Yes is a band for people who don't know that was really huge <laughs> in the 70s and 80s. And uh yeah, I first saw them as a 13-year-old in uh, uh in 1977 actually live. And I ended up getting to know the band. I was this kind of young kid still at school hanging out with these rock stars and before you knew it I was going to their weddings. I was meeting people like Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin But you have uh, to David
0: translate Ford. for Millennials and even for, uh, for I don't know, Generation, whatever they are, Generation X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E These are huge names, I mean, Led Probably Zeppelin, Ye- no, I mean, Led Zeppelin Yes Floyd, was
1: huge just, uh, Massive quantities of, of albums and, you know, if they were to tour live, uh, they would you know, they'd be selling out stadiums like they used to. And what was interesting about that, um, I co-produced the global broadcast that launched World AIDS Day, and I did that out of the BBC uh, on December the 1st, 1988, and we launched, uh, we did that for the World Health Organisation to launch World AIDS Day. And then basically I, I had this phone call uh, the next morning, about 3 o'clock in the morning from America, saying, can you help us to get uh, this film crew into Armenia, which was then the Soviet, in, in, you know, in, in the Soviet Union. So I managed to get, because I knew the Soviet ambassador from having done this uh, AIDS global broadcast, I managed to get the first foreign film crew into Armenia after the earthquake. And I,
0: So the earthquake had already happened when you got that call. So the, the, the film yeah. crew was because of the earthquake, right? Right.
1: Well, they were in Turkey doing something else and so I managed to get them across the border with permission from uh, the, the Soviet Union, uh, thanks to the ambassador, and got the first independent crew on the ground uh, into the earthquake zone. So I ended up seeing like just the worst footage you can imagine, um, stuff that just couldn't make it to air. I remember in particular uh, footage from a school where the, the ceiling had just collapsed on top of these poor children. And only one kid had survived in that in that whole school. And so I felt compelled to uh, do something. So initially, I kind of helped out other organisations that were doing things because of my background in the entertainment industry. But then I thought, hold on, I know all these rock bands. I know Floyd, I know Zeppelin, I know Queen, I know Yes, uh, I know Black Sabbath, I know Deep Purple. Uh, no one's ever got those guys together. So I called up David Gilmour. Explained the idea. Turns out he had an Armenian friend, and he said yes. And he said, "What song are you looking at doing?" And I said, "Well, Smoke on the Water." And he said, oh, "Does it have to be?" And I said, "At least you can play it. You know, it's the easiest, uh, easiest guitar tune to play." And then I called Brian May from Queen, and he said yes. And I realized once I had uh, David gilmore and Brian May, I definitely had a charity record on my hands that uh, could could be a hit. How
0: old were you at this point?
1: So I was 24 at the time when I did that.
0: 24, okay.
1: And uh, but I ended up with the guitar players from Pink Floyd, Queen, uh, you know, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, and Rush. Uh, Jimmy Page couldn't do it from Led Zeppelin because he was overseas. Uh, but I ended up having you know a, a real who's who of guitar players, singers, and and drummers. And look, Brian Adams at that time was number one in in 13 countries. And he, you know, he literally swung by the studio one day and we said, well, do you want to sing on it? And he said, which verse? And we said, well, we've already recorded the verses. How about you do backing vocals? So we had this number one superstar <laughs> and we could only squeeze him in on backing vocals. But the good news is we ended up having um, a top 40 hit in the UK with that. The album uh, was even way more successful. Uh, we put a remix of the uh, "The Smoke on the Water track on the album Everybody gave us their, you know, their biggest hits and we sold 100,000 copies in 10 days. And that was the first charity album in the UK uh, to go gold. And what was exciting about that is, uh, you know, we relaunched uh, Rocket Armenia in 2009 with Ara Tadavosian in Armenia, who's, who's my colleague and in, in, in very close friend in Armenia. And off the back of that, uh, we ended up building a really fantastic music school that teaches 220 kids a year in the earthquake zone. So it's very exciting that, you know, the, the outcomes you, of that project. You went been... back
0: in 2019 and you met some of the people that you had see, not seen for uh, whatever that is, 30 odd years, right?
1: So what we did... Um, I have to to acknowledge Ian Gillan from Deep Purple. He's the lead singer of Deep Purple, and Tony Iommi, uh, the lead guitarist of Black Sabbath. If you look at all the people who've been involved, uh, those two have been incredible in their ongoing support for the project. And so, back in two thousand and nine, uh, I was all given the uh, Ian Gillan and Tony Iommi, and I were given the Order of Honor by the president of Armenia, which at that time was Armenia's biggest medal that they could give us. Uh, for the work that we've been doing, so Ian and I have been going back on and off over the years, but last year uh, we ended up having our 30th anniversary event and had the the main opera house in uh, Yerevan, the you know the president, a uh, you know, friend of yours who came along as our main guest, and Ian Gillen so Armin, and Sa-
0: Armen Sarkisian. That's yeah. right,
1: yeah, and and basically Ian Gillan and Tony Iommi came out for that. We had a packed house. And it was really fantastic to take them both to the school the next day because Tony's never seen the school in action. And so we got to see all the kids uh, performing for us. And it's really important because music plays a really important part in the culture of Armenia. And when they had the earthquake, literally the music stopped. And so one of our aims as an organisation at Rock Armenia was to help get the music underway again. And so what was interesting was... I think Rocket Armenia's main benefit was not the fact that we have built a school and done all these things over there. I think it was the fact that their favourite bands like Pink Floyd and Deep Purple and Black Sabbath, which, which are still huge in Armenia, the fact that their favourite rock bands were still caring many, many years after the earthquake, it had a really big impact on the morale of the people.
0: And did you also raise money at the time? I mean, presumably there's some dollar figure that, that, that you helped uh, with the um, earthquake relief.
1: Yeah so a lot of the work we did we, we raised money from the uh, the album which was not a huge amount compared to, to say if you were going to do a concert um, but we also did a lot of in kind you know because we got all these rock stars we had a lot of people offering their time for free so we we focused our work on uh, therapy for the kids because you right. know there was one uh, school in particular that we helped And we did it with a combination of money, but also in-kind volunteers. And this entire classroom, they called it the orphan's room. And every single child in that room had lost their mum, their dad, brothers, sisters, aunties, uncles, grandparents. uh, uh, And they literally had nobody left in their life that they knew that they were related to. And it was like a horror movie. These kids they were alive, but they weren't alive. You know, they, uh, it was so sad to see. So a lot of the, uh, the work we did, we did a combination of, of in-kind support and also cash.
0: Now, I mean, one of the themes that this sort of touches on is, um, you know, in the climate and environment space, there are a lot of um, celebrities that, you know, how can I put it? You know, some of them get in, involved and it's authentic and they do something and they achieve something and they stick at it for uh, for the long term and then there's lots of you know sort of bungee celebrities who will you know go on one trip to somewhere Africa or wherever or they'll make some comment about uh, how important it is to unplug your mobile phone from the charger because of the climate or they'll uh, you know fly to London and that was the most recent one uh, flying to London to take part in the Extinction Rebellion um, uh, protest. But, you know, you, you, you've done something incredibly authentic there. And then you went on and you've done other things. So we're, maybe we come back to that question of how do you well use celebrities in your work? If you're an NGO or if you're a celebrity, what, what is it mm-hmm. that you should do? and What is it you should not do? Because you went on from that experience and then um, you've got the next one that you did was Planet Ark. Is that right?
1: That's right. So uh, in June in 1991, um, Pat Cash, who's a a very close friend of mine uh, and has been now for more than 30 years, uh, the tennis player, he just got knocked out of Wimbledon and he called me up and he said, uh, because he'd done very well at Queen's (coughs) and uh, just before Wimbledon, and so he had, uh, you know, a whole case or two of Stella Artois beer and he joked, he said, uh, you've got to come over because uh, tomorrow I'm going away for a couple of weeks. And if we don't drink that, that whole case of Stella Artois beer it's going to go off.
0: The Queen's and... Club is the Stella Artois tournament, isn't it?
1: That's right. Right. So okay, had, I get the connection. A beer, and I'm, a, and I'm a, this charity guy. So when someone calls you up and says, you know, we've got to drink a whole case of beer, otherwise it's going to go off within two weeks I will just go along with that, and so Pat and I got drunk. Um, and but what was interesting was, you know, we were these these young guys, and both at that time, uh, gosh, twenty six. And in you know, instead of doing the usual boy talk, we ended up finding out that we were both really passionate about the environment. My first full time job in the environment had been at Earthlife with John Elkington and Nigel Tursley in nineteen eighty six, and so by the end of the evening and all those beers later we decided we would set up our own environment group because we thought okay there there isn't really uh, a a pro-business environment group that goes out to the public with solutions and uh, and with celebrities to kind of get the message out and so Pat and I decided to set up uh, what became Planet Ark and I moved to Australia to do that on January the 1st 1992 within uh, seven weeks managed to get a, a really huge multi-million dollar uh, sponsorship from Channel 7 where they gave me two primetime ads every night seven days a week and we had that all up for about two and a half years we, over the two series that we what did. Were
0: you, what were you doing with that I mean what was the you know so you got the income side sorted presumably you got the donations what were you doing with the, with the funds?
1: So what we ended up doing was uh, uh, because you mentioned celebrities, we then, the, the deal I did with Channel 7 was that, okay, um, they give me millions and millions of dollars of, of airtime free of charge. I had to sign a contract that said I would go out and get celebrities to present them. So I thought, okay, who are the most authentic celebrities? So Bob Geldof, you know, Paul McCartney uh, and and people like that who, and Livy Newton-John, people who had gone on the record about their concern for the environment and had done so you know for many many years and so in in answer to your question so i ended up more than delivered on the celebrities we ended up doing over 350 TV ads over the the, you know, the, the two series that we had I managed to get an unbelievable array of, of major celebrities not just Australian celebrities but you know some of the biggest names in Hollywood like Dustin Hoffman Tom Cruise Nicole Kidman uh... And, you know Pierce Brosnan and, and many others and so what we always looked for um and what i have always looked for is people who are authentic over a long term okay. i'll give you a couple but of examples was like, like,
0: what, was what was planet arc delivering though i get i, I, I want to come back to this because it's very interesting you have all these celebrities but you were doing national tree day national recycling day I mean, what were you telling australians to do or what, what were you paying what was going on what was the what was the charitable goal
1: So what we were doing with the ads was showing people the practical things that they could do in their day-to-day lives to make a difference, to reduce their impact on the environment and in many cases actually save money. And the other thing we did, which was a real first, and bear in mind this is 1992, the uh, the first 52 videos that we shot, the first 52 ads that we shot were presented by newsreaders and they focused on what businesses were doing that was helping them to... Uh, improve their sustainability performance, reduce their environmental impact, but also save money at the same time. And so I, I wrote that series back in 1992. Um, and so with the celebrities part, Channel 7 wanted us to get celebrities to go out with positive messages to show people the practical things uh, that they could do. And and it worked incredibly well.
0: Okay. And and so again, these, this is something that, you know, this is now nearly 30 years ago and it was um getting businesses showing businesses how they can do well while doing good and then celebrating it i mean that's that's sort Mm -hmm. of the shorthand for a number of the things we're going to talk about Um, okay do something you already mentioned in the uh in your intro you're still involved that's do something nearby and that's about joining some sort of civic activity nearby not is it all environmental or not not all
1: no it does both. So we have do something near you.com.au and it took us years near, near to Near you,
0: not nearby. Sorry. Yeah,
1: uh, it took us years nope. to pull it together because as a coding uh, platform it's it was quite complex. We have 15,000 suburbs and communities in Australia and then we went out to find out okay, what can you do in your local communities? And uh, so we ended up having to get all the you know the information on where all the charity shops were where all the different rotary lions clubs were all the land care organisations where you can plant trees you know every charity you can imagine is listed on this website and so it basically is about getting people to give back and do good in their local community because i think as society has developed we've become very self-centred as people and in australia in particular one one of the things that one of the reasons i moved here was every australian i'd ever met in the uk always helped other Australians when they were out of a job or uh, you know so if if you didn't have a job you still went out to the pub with your friends and everyone else would pay for your beers everyone else would pay for your food and then when you got a job you were expected to do the same so I really like the fact that people looked after each other and so do something near you is about trying to encourage that kind of approach where we look after each other a bit more and where we can volunteer and, and give back in the community. Just one thing I would like to finish on, though, just very quickly, was your earlier question about celebrities. One of the things we found, and I think this is important for anyone who wants to use uh, celebrities, the people we got had long term commitment. So, you know, I mentioned Olivia Newton John. We started National Tree Day together uh, in Australia and we fronted that for the first 10 million trees that got planted. Olivia had planted 10,000 trees in her home uh, you know we had pierce brosnan doing ads for us and pierce you know back then and still to this day is a very uh, eloquent and well-spoken advocate uh, for environmental issues uh, same with pat cash you know pat ever since he won wimbledon as has been a very good advocate uh... for the environment and and seeks out Information to educate himself. Uh, so when he's giving interviews, he, you know, he's, 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 he's giving the right information. So we always went out to get people who had genuine empathy for the issue. And I always joke that the people you want to get to front your initiatives, you know, you should uh, they should be able to have a twenty-four hour flight from Australia to London, arrive totally jet lagged, and if they had a TV camera put in their face could still answer the questions about the campaign that they were fronting because they, they know it, you know, from the heart and they know it factually as well. And and you want to have people who aren't going to embarrass you either, uh, you know, so you don't want to link up with any celebrities who might have any drug issues or something like that, especially with all, all the work, you know, we did with kids. So we needed to take that into account uh, when we were doing but
0: that. But what about the question of, um, you know, these people, every single one that you've mentioned has an incredibly damaging lifestyle in terms of the environment. I mean, they're all flying everywhere. They've all got huge homes. They've got swimming pools. They've got, and, you know, they're, they're not, they're not going to not do those things, right? So, and and uh, so how do you deal with that from a reputational perspective as somebody who works with them? Um, you know, is it okay to say, oh, well, they bought offsets, so that's fine. But, you know, not everybody can just have that fabulous lifestyle and then buy offsets. Not everybody in the world. There's 8 billion of us.
1: At the end of the day, celebrity uh, culture is a really huge thing in society. And so what I think we need to do is recognise that. That's just a fact of life. But uh, if you look at the broader population, you know, with the billions of people who now live on the planet, um, a lot of them look up to celebrities. And if you are able to have those people advocate for things that we can all do, uh, and also, you know, celebrities can also use their clout to advocate for things like, green cement, green steel, it doesn't have to just be things you could do in the home that uh, some people might see as token. And so the fact is we are where we are with regards to the lifestyles of of, uh, well-known celebrities, but a lot of those celebrities I know do whatever they can to minimise that impact, you know, through offsets, uh, you know, and by planting huge numbers of trees themselves. Uh, You know, there's a number of people I know who go out of their way to make sure that where they have had an income say with a, a tour a music tour, uh, they've gone out and planted tens and tens of thousands of trees uh, just out of their own pocket and without telling anyone so you know a lot of the people who do that kind of thing you know tend to be quite authentic as they can, as much as they can but I think the when they go out there and talk about these issues they put them out there in the media it makes it a lot easier for politicians and businesses to then enact those in you know action on those environmental issues and when you have celebrities doing that um the knock-on effect is far bigger than any impact they have in their life you know so for example with you and i we do a lot of traveling internationally but if you look at the environmental results that we bring about through the sustainability advocacy that we do uh, the impact we have results wise far outweighs any impact that you and i have from the traveling that we do
0: I, i um not, you won 't be surprised it 's something that i 've thought about a lot and i 've discussed a lot and i 'm very open about, uh, so for instance, for many years i didn 't buy offsets because I thought, well, why are we focusing on let 's say my flights? Well, if we take my life as a whole, the work i 've done on renewable energy, the work i 've done with investors, changing the flows at an absolutely grand scale you know i mean uh, bloomberg NEF um, subscribers have invested literally literally trillions of dollars now in in renewable energy and other but you know and i've had a tiny weeny effect but on a very big number but when it comes to celebrities first of all i'm not 100 i'm sure i've reached the right sort of conclusion i now do buy offsets um but when it comes to celebrities i suppose the concern i have is that you have a system which fundamentally is telling people um that these are the people whose lifestyles you want to emulate and not just these particular ones that are buying offsets but all of them you, know, you should just want to fly around, you should want to be on a permanent holiday, you should want to you know, be perfect on Instagram in front of swimming pools and in hotels and jet skiing and on quad bikes and et cetera, et cetera. And it's it sort of, you know, if we all actually achieve that lifestyle, even if we all tried to buy offsets, there would not be enough offsets. So mm-hmm. there's something, I mean, isn't there something that's just at a structural systemic level got to change?
1: Look, I mean, if you think... if you, Look, the kind of celebrities I've worked with uh, tend to be very authentic. They're not the kind of uh, the Instagram crowd that, uh, you know, that do tend to be a bit vacuous. Um, you know, uh, but I think the the key thing that we need to bear in mind that the number of celebrities is quite small uh, when you compare them to the overall population. And what we've seen with COVID is, I think, a you know, a lot of these celebrities have given interviews saying... They've actually really enjoyed not having to travel. You know, for example, um, I came back from Colombia for one treat per child um, at the start of of March. I haven't travelled since, and I have really enjoyed it. The fact now that, you know, we're doing these kind of interviews and all our meetings are being done now with Zoom or Skype or Teams a lot of us have realised we didn't have our balance right. And so if we have to look at what is one of the positive things that's come out of uh, COVID, if you could say that, because it's so awful, um, is that it's actually made us rethink travel. And so it's going to be very interesting to see what the long-term impact on this is on the travel industry. I mean, we all will need to travel for work and see family, but a lot more people now have got used to this kind of communication where we're talking to each other and as... as internet speeds improve, as bandwidth improves, as computers and cameras improve. Um, you know, we'll be doing a lot more of this. And we, in a short space of time, we'll, have, we'll be doing this where we'll see each other in 3D, you know, um, instead of on a screen like we're seeing now. So I think there's going to be... I think for a lot of people, they actually like the fact they're not having to travel and have such a big impact. And the fact that we've all been made to stay in our homes it's made us rethink what kind of world we want. And so I think there's been some very good debate off the back of COVID about what do future cities look like? Yeah. And how do we engage with each other? And yeah. how do we reduce that impact?
0: With, without, without question. And I think the, the, uh, how sticky these behaviors are going to be. And in fact, whether this sort of conversation uh, eats into telephony because I now have Zoom calls with complete strangers. Normally I'd have said, let's have a phone call. Now I have a Zoom call. Whether it actually reduces the amount of conferences and in-person, I, I mean, there's some big open questions. I, I like your optimism. I just You mentioned One Tree Per Child. That's the fourth of your big charities. Tell us what it is. It's about planting trees, lots of trees, lots and lots of trees. And then I want to move on to your media activities, your, your sort of non-charitable, um, you know, hardcore media activities,
1: Yeah, so One Tree Per Child, again, um, you know, Olivia and I fronted National Tree Day for the first 10 million trees. I think it's up to 25 million trees now, uh, and Planet Arca are running that, and that's great to see that that is just every year there's a million new trees uh, going in the ground. But what we realised was that uh, there's only, on National Tree Day, the local councils who provide that support for schools can only uh, provide so much support to local schools. And so we thought, okay, well what everyone could agree on that it would actually be really good if every child planted a tree because I remember when I planted a tree as a kid and I've seen tens of thousands of kids plant trees in the time that I was fronting tree day and I realized it had a really big impact on the kids. The kids love planting trees at the same time they love watching the trees grow and as the trees grow so does the kids commitment to the environment because they're seeing that they have had a really big impact and so the kids are taught about the benefit of the trees. They're taught about the benefit of habitat from those trees to wildlife. And so we thought, okay, well, maybe what we need to do is to launch a policy uh, to try and get it out there that we should try and have it so that every child gets the opportunity to plant a tree. And so I ended up- John, can I ask,
0: are they physically planting the tree or do they just get a certificate saying, you've planted this tree somewhere in the middle of nowhere?
1: No, getting them to plant the tree because I think that the just getting their hands in the yeah. soil, getting their hands dirty, is really important with kids, and and they love doing it. And any education they get about tree planting, and and benefits to wildlife and the environment, is brought to life when you are involved in planting the trees. So what we did was, I you know, I, I sat down with George Ferguson, uh, who was the then mayor of Bristol, and George is really passionate about kids and tree planting, like I am. And so we ended up um having dinner and i said well look we want to get a we had the idea in australia but we'd, we we'd rather start it somewhere else and so will bristol become the first city to to actually do this and let's try and get a role model that we can point to uh where we've done it successfully so bristol had thirty six thousand kids had i think about 130 schools and so we said okay let's try and get every school involved let's try and get 36 000 trees in the ground. Bristol was the European Green Capital uh, was just about to become European Green Capital so it became the main kids focus of that Green Capital year. The good news is within 18 months we planted those uh, 36,000 trees and every time there is a new year, a new um, enrollment in primary schools in Bristol now all of those kids get the opportunity to plant a tree. So we're now up to 60,000 trees in, uh, in Bristol and we've now started running our role models and case studies in other countries to ensure that it can work across different cultures. So we're planting trees in Kenya uh, with Chase Africa, where uh, we've been planting trees in South Sudan in a, in an internal displacement camp uh, with a UN uh, peacekeeper called Colonel Bond, who got all the kids to plant trees because they were all very depressed because you know they were stuck behind these uh, in this in this camp uh, with the UN protecting them. And the kids, you know, he gave the kids hope by getting them to plant their own tree. And he said, when your tree gets to this height, then you can go home. So it was about giving kids hope. And here in Australia, we planted hundreds of thousands of trees. Uh, We've just raised hundreds of thousands of dollars with Tree Pittsburgh to do it in Pittsburgh, uh, in America. And we are rolling it out in a big way in Colombia as well. So we're trying to do it around the world to show that if we can do, if we can get one kid each to plant a tree in these different communities, different backgrounds, different, uh, you know, in different countries. If we can do it there, we can do it everywhere. And so the idea is to try and encourage this so that every kid plants the tree.
0: Kenya, of course, the great Wangari Matai was about, was, she's really kicked off the sort of Kenyan understanding of the importance of trees and reversing deforestation, did she not?
1: Yeah, she she did an amazing job um, and such an inspiring person. And, and what we're doing yes. in Kenya actually is very interesting. So we're uh, some of our projects are near Mount Kenya. And so schools over there have a lot of land. So we're actually, uh, the project we're backing over there is where they teach the kids how to grow their own trees. And so the trees are grown at the school. You, uh, you crop them in order to get firewood. So that helps the local women not have to go out and walk, you know, many kilometres every day to go and get firewood, which inevitably comes from the, you know, the the local forests. Um, So they get it cheaply and it means they can do other things. Um, We end up, the wood that's end up up getting grown, uh, what Chase Africa have been doing is they then, uh, you know, sell that wood for construction locally, wood is kept back so they can build classrooms they can also use the firewood to give the kids a hot meal so the benefits of trees in a society like kenya uh, can be absolutely huge and if you teach kids how to grow their own trees and basically build their own homes um in a way that doesn't impact on local forests uh, then you know the environmental and social benefits can be very significant
0: okay so now that you've been you, you sort of you did these four charities and you work with celebrities, but in the end, you've sort of became the celebrity, right? I mean, it's uh, you had your own, your own persona that then the public uh, started to know. And then you you sort of shifted your career into more into, I don't know what to call it, traditional media, went into the media. So you did these, uh, you wrote some books, you did Smart Money, uh, you then stopped doing that, and you're now doing this um, Good News with John D, where you um, you sort of highlight stories Uh, on ABC Australia radio, Um, but it's all about celebrating business. So you've you've really focused in on celebrating the wins, how business can do good and do well at the same time. Um, Talk about that transition. How did you sort of go from being the guy who starts charities and plants trees to the guy that you see on the telly or you hear on the radio?
1: I got to that kind of position where, if, if I'm really honest, I got a bit bored with the whole celebrity thing and uh, and thought that actually, if we want to create the biggest change possible in the shortest space of time, we need to get businesses to do a lot more and a lot faster. And we need to really ramp that up. And so I found, because I, I was known for my pro-business position, um, which has not always been the case with a lot of environmentalists, um, and when I sat down and talked to sustainability uh, directors at major companies, you kind of realised that whilst they had a certain level of knowledge, there was a lot of things that they didn't know about the solutions that not only would reduce their company's environmental impact, but would actually save them money as well. And so I thought, okay, well, that's what I need to focus on, because, you know, looking at where I want to be, so, you know, when I'm finished up with my, you know, life, I want to be able to look back and think, okay, could I have done any better? Could I have done more to get the word out about the solutions? And so I thought that that's what I'm going to really make my main focus. So I wrote a book called Sustainable Growth in uh, 2010. And the deal I made with the the book publisher was that um, they would give a copy of the book away free to every business person who turned up to see me speak. What they didn't realize was as soon as I got that contract signed, I then lined up 300 speeches around Australia <laughs> and spent about two years kind of going around just speaking to business owners, you know, both small and medium-sized, but it ended up becoming a book that it became... The, it was the first mainstream book that in very plain, simple English told you how to go about making your business more sustainable. And, and I assumed from the, day, from the get-go that let's assume you know nothing about sustainability which in fact is the reality for a lot of small to medium-sized business owners back then. And then uh, off the back of that, did lots of speeches, uh, you know, did lots of media interviews. That led then to the Australian government uh, giving the Do Something organization nearly a million dollars to allow me and my team to go out and do research, looking at hundreds of companies and how they used energy. And so that led to a book called Energy Cut, and then one morning I got a phone, well, I actually got a late night text from the guy who ran Sky News in Australia at the time. And he said, guess what I'm reading? And he sent a, a, you know, a copy of, of the NG Cup book on the bedside table. He said, come and see me. I've got an idea. So I ended up sitting down with Angelo and James, who's the business channel manager at Sky News. And I thought they were interviewing me, uh, you know, to be a, to be a regular guest. weekly guest on sky news business channel and i realized by the end of the meeting they said so you can begin you you, the show in in two weeks time and i suddenly realized they were actually offering me my own tv show uh, which was called smart money and so two weeks later i ended up having my own live tv show going out every week i did 115 episodes showing what businesses could do that could save them money and at the same time demonstrably reduce their impact but also improve of their, you know, what, what they could give back to society.
0: And I love that it's called smart money. It's not called green money, it's not called sustainability, it's not called do the right mm-hmm. thing, yawn, it's called smart money. And I've got to get you together with um, the, the uh, episode seven, Bertrand Picard, now he's the guy who flew around the world, uh, first of all in a balloon nonstop, but then right. in an electric uh, airplane. And uh, I'm now um, a member of the advisory board of his foundation, the Solar Impulse Foundation, He's identified 652, what he calls efficient solutions. So he's kind of giving them a certification, a a stamp, a kite mark to say, don't do things the old way, do it the new way, because it's smart. He says, it's not just ecological, it's logical, is how he describes it. And so, you know, the parallels between what you're doing with your 115 episodes and what he's doing with his 652, and he's on track to get a thousand solutions, which he's committed to do. Um, are so strong. I'm amazed you've not, you know, you've not bonded yet, but I'll get you two together.
1: Look, I think it's a great idea. And this is what is exciting about the role I I now have is, and and I'm sure it's the same for you. You know, I'm uh, 57 now, and I am still learning and I love the fact that I'm still learning. And so, you know, I'm just doing a consultancy at the moment for a major property company and Just finding out, you know, new things about green concrete, green steel, um, you know, green cement, you know, geopolymer cement is fascinating. The, The potential to massively reduce impact, use up waste materials and save money. You know, there are so many solutions out there that just make common sense. And that's one of the areas where, you know, I've never got involved with politics. My preference is always to work with businesses because if you can provide a really good business case for a solution businesses automatically will do it because it makes financial and business sense whereas if you go to a politician and try and get them to do it often their knowledge is very low the advisors often tend to be quite poor quality in in, in australia and i'm you know i guess in the you know in other countries too And so my preference is always where you can work with business, because if you have a good compelling argument that has a good financial basis to it, you've got a far bigger chance of of getting that up and running.
0: Yes. Well, so um, I'm going to have to talk about the quality of advisors to politicians in the UK. I have to do this very carefully uh, because a couple of days ago it was announced uh, that I've been appointed as an advisor to the board of trade. Uh, So I think the UK has got fabulous advisors. Of course, um, one of the other advisors uh, who was appointed at the same time, was your former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott. So I'm going to say absolutely nothing about quality. I'm probably best if I just say nothing about quality of advisors at all. I won't get into trouble. But what's important, we are going to talk about um, uh, about politics, because you're doing all this stuff. You're planting hundreds of thousands of trees. You're doing extraordinary things. You're then celebrating businesses, um, hundreds of episodes uh, of the TV show, and now you still do this roundup on radio that I mentioned, uh, celebrating news stories out of the business community, probably most of them. Uh, and mm-hmm. yet, the background in Australia for climate and energy policy, I'm going to say it, you don't, you could disagree, but uh, you don't have to, uh, you, don't, you don't have to agree or disagree, but the background is really toxic.
1: I mean, and it's quite. A, yeah. So, it, it, sorry? It, it's, it's unbelievably toxic what is interesting toxic. yeah it's it, it, it beggars belief right it makes no sense so you have um you have a political party and look and i'm not politically aligned with anyone i've made it uh, my point of doing that at a federal level this is the national level um, the conservatives have almost worn, a, worn it with a badge of pride with their scientific ignorance and they define themselves by what they're against they say they're pro-business but when you look at the decisions they're making it does it's not actually good for the long term health and sustainability of australian business and australian society and so there's they've actively taken part in denial of the climate science and uh, and acted in ignorance of science full stop and so what is interesting though and to balance that off some of the best people politically Doing things are at the state level and the local level and that's where the politics gets out of it there are some great people in the conservative side of politics at the state level Matt Keane is a good example the environment minister uh, in New South Wales for the government here Uh, he's a liberal which is in your in in the UK that's the conservatives absolutely so an
0: Australian liberal is actually on the political right would be a conservative in in the UK system yeah
1: that's right. And so, you know, he's been fantastic. The um, uh, you know, the, the Premier of South Australia has carried on the fantastic renewable um policies that were implemented by Labour at the state level in South Australia. If you look at Victoria, Lily D'Ambrosio, the energy minister there, is absolutely fantastic and has had some great advisors around them. So it's at the, the, the federal national level where things have really fallen over and there's been this ridiculous argument, you know, over renewables. And, you know, when we had the last election, you you actually had the current Prime Minister of Australia saying electric cars will ruin your weekend, you know, because uh, weekends will, will be banished because of electric cars. I mean, it was really ridiculous stuff. And so, um, you know, anyone who's driven an electric car will know, actually, um, you know, the issues of long distance and fast charging... Uh, are being overcome and the prices are coming down and the crazy thing this anti-electric car policy that the government took to the last election made no sense because if you go on the autobahns in Germany and, and other major motorways in Europe about half of the fast charges are actually made in Brisbane in Australia by a company called Tritium. It's created hundreds of jobs and yet we had a government that were actively acting against the interest of these new industry jobs, which makes no sense. And so we're amongst the best in the world. The same goes for things like green cement. Uh, Wagners in Queensland have a geopolymer cement that um, is absolutely fantastic. It can replace most cement that is currently being used, performance-wise, just as good. So I think that a lot of the toxic debate that's gone on has undermined really good innovative businesses in Australia that have the potential to be world leading, you know, creating jobs at a massive level. And uh, and I know we're going to talk about this later with Sun Cable. Um, Australia has got the potential to really take advantage of the renewable energy economy, uh, you know, not just for Australia, but also for exporting it too.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, just for those who are, might be watching this but are not familiar with the sort of with the uh, the energy debate in australia this is not knockabout. i mean this has real consequences you know and i find it inexplicable when you have australia and you've got you've got cheap coal you've got cheap gas you've got you've got so much sun you've got cheap wind you've got uranium you've got i mean literally every single energy resource you could possibly want whichever ones you agree with or disagree with you've got them all and yet you have some of the most expensive electricity Uh, and some of the most uh, fragile grid in the world. I mean, it takes real talent, um, whether it's one political party or whether it's polarization and who contributed to it. You know, I come in as a visitor. I mean, I'm just sort of like, I just don't, you you know, you call it yourself, you know, the lucky country. Well, you're lucky in the resources, but not in your, your, you know, political delivery, what you do with them.
1: Yeah, look, I'll give you a good example of just how stupid it is. So we have this huge gas resource and we used to have really cheap gas and then nobody voted for this right this was not a government policy this was not voted on at an election suddenly uh, we had lng and we started exporting gas now someone and it wasn't in a, in a
0: very big way right
1: it, we are the biggest exporter of liquefied natural gas in the world what is crazy about this is what has the outcome been has it been where we're getting billions of dollars a year no, we're not. We, we probably get more money from beer royalties than we get from the gas that we're exporting around the world. What we have got is a doubling of household gas prices because we're being told that, oh no, you have to, as Australians, for Australian gas, you have to pay the international price because our politicians were stupid to not put in place a, you know, a domestic reserve to ensure that our right. businesses kept having cheap gas. And so we're in a position where overseas companies that are competitive to Australian companies can buy Australian gas cheaper than Australian companies can, and the, you know, the, the, as I said, the price of of, of gas in the domestically has doubled. So we've, you know, prices have dramatically gone up. A lot of businesses have gone out of uh, have got out of business. People have lost jobs. Um, and as you say, it takes a really special skill to screw up something uh, like that. Got in- the
0: solution to this, right? Because in the in the aftermath of COVID, the solution to this surely is is what's called the gas-driven recovery. We we'll just we'll do, all we have to do is drop is do something to drop those gas prices, and, and then we'll have a big recovery from COVID. Isn't that isn't that a great isn't that a great solution?
1: Well, it, of course it isn't, because if you look at all the major property companies now who are doing big high-rise, you know, office developments, high-rise residential, doing really big housing developments, all of them are planning to do that without any form of natural gas. So they're taking the lead here. We have a, the property sector in Australia is really progressive. We have the Green Building Council in Australia who are absolutely fantastic. And so, um, you know, we're moving away from gas. And if you look at where where we are going to use gas, we need to be using hydrogen, you know. So the potential for green hydrogen uh, to... You know, I, I think in the UK it's probably got better potential. Like if you look at Leeds, the city of Leeds, they're looking to replace natural gas with hydrogen within the grid, just as we did when, you know, when you and I were younger and we, we went from town gas uh, to North Sea gas. You know, so there we do have a precedent in, in switching over entirely the type of gas uh, that we use at, at a household and business level. And so it makes sense to be thinking about creating green hydrogen um, and Using that where you can, but also um, exporting it, you know, liquefied hydrogen uh, and also, you know, putting using hydrogen for exporting products. There's there's, there's just huge opportunities uh, within that space. And and in fact, Arup in the UK are doing some really interesting stuff on that whole issue of how do you use hydrogen within the economy. I think some bits of that have been overhyped. I can't see hydrogen cars ever taking off. I think electric cars are far further along and just make more sense. Um, but I think you know there's certainly a lot of uses uh, for hydrogen within a hydrogen economy.
0: A- absolutely, and of course I raised the question of the gas-driven uh, recovery. In, in fact, um, the last thing that I did um, that involved uh, um, you know, talking to uh, Australian Australians was with the Energy Efficiency Council, another great. Sort of association of business interests and actually that brings me to you know one of the last things i want to i want to um raise with you which is um business seems correct me if i correct me if i'm wrong to have really stepped up in australia in those vacuums you talked about the states and i give credit the states have stepped up but also business has stepped up um and is filling some of those gaps um, those hydrogen plans they're not really being promoted primarily at the federal level they're being promoted primarily from a bunch of businesses and investors in my experience is that have i got that right is business filling the gap
1: you have and what's been interesting is we we've got a something you know for an example of this is mike cannon brooks very wealthy billionaire who is the co-founder and co-ceo of the software company atlassian he's an australian mike's worth you know, billions of dollars. And so he has been a fantastic advocate for renewable energy. So he's part of RE100 and, and, you know, you and I did an event together in Sydney where you were speaking and and Mike was speaking and I was hosting it. And as you know, Mike is a, a very eloquent advocate for the renewable economy. So what's been interesting is he's a supporter of Beyond Zero Emissions, which is the best think tank in Australia when it comes to looking at uh, what it, what does the renewable energy-led economy. What does it look like? What is the benefit to business? And they've come up with a, a 1 million job plan over five years to look at the different ways in which renewable energy can bring down energy costs, uh, to help businesses to look at how can we retrofit ho- homes to be energy efficient, to have solar on them, to build social housing in a, in a green way. Um, you know they've come up with a lot of ideas for businesses on green aluminium, green steel. Um, you know if you look at all the opportunities we have with all the solar and wind in Australia you know we can be making this stuff here and adding value instead of just shipping it offshore and let someone else add value to it so there's been a lot of business focus on how can we do that here better in australia and mike has also involved with sun cable and this is really interesting for australia we're trusted as um as a country where if you place an order with us for a certain type of energy you will get that energy guaranteed you know we're politically very stable and we're very good at delivering uh, energy to other countries. So Sun Cable is a project that Mike has put money into. Andrew Forrester has also put money into it. He's another billionaire in Australia. The idea is to create a 10 gigawatt uh, solar farm, uh, then basically pipe that energy to a huge battery that's far bigger than anything that's been done to date in Darwin at the top of Australia. And then, you know, with a high-voltage direct current uh, cable, four and a half thousand kilometers of that all the way to singapore the idea is that you know here in australia this project could provide 20 to 25 percent of the power for singapore and if you can do singapore you can also do indonesia and you can do other cities in australia and that's all been led by business government has not been involved with that but however since businesses kick-started that since mike has been talking about it and doing a brilliant job doing that Now it's got a, you know, priority status as a government project. So government are kind of following the lead of business. Um, But I think where things uh, hopefully will move is that as those kind of projects prove themselves, uh, and certainly renewables have shown that they can bring a downward pressure on energy prices, we need to get government policy working in partnership with business, then we can really move. And the benefit to the economy, the benefit to jobs... Uh, will be very, very significant indeed. And, and that's what we all want. We want a, a better society. We want secure jobs. And one of the best ways to get out of this whole COVID economy situation that we have now, which has been damaging us so badly around the world, a renewable energy-led uh, uh, you know, uh, recovery is absolutely critical.
0: And I've written about um, and spoken about... Um energy, clean energy superpowers, you know, where you've got really cheap wind and really cheap solar, and they're either co-located or you can link them with a HVDC cable, you're going to have the cheapest clean electricity 70, 80% of the time. Um, and then you can, you know, you, you've got to figure out the other 20%, but, the, but fundamentally the economics are clean and the economic, you're, that energy system will be cheap. And the locations that have that, there's North Africa, there's Australia. There's the Gulf. There's parts of you know Mexico, um, Southwest US, um, parts of China, parts of India. These will be the these surely ought to be the manufacturing superpowers, because you've got the cheapest electricity. It not it won't just be the cheapest clean electricity. It'll be the cheapest electricity, and I suppose to turn that into a question for you, how do you persuade a sort of business political, I don't wanna say clique, but community that has just had a great three, four, five decades selling fossil natural resources and extractive uh, uh, commodities. How do you, how do you, cause you know, are you getting through to them or are they, are they listening those people or are you talking to all the other parts of business?
1: Look, I think you have to look at a really good example of a country doing this properly is the UK. You know, you've got the Conservative government over there who have uh, led the way on the phase out of coal fired power, doing a very, very good job on that in the UK. And But what is important, if you look at the North Sea oil uh, and gas sector, well, how do you transition away from that? And, you know, Britain provides us with that role model. Britain, when it first started doing offshore wind, everyone was criticising the UK, saying it's crazy, it's too over-subsidised, this doesn't make sense. But if you look now at what Britain have done there, the Conservative Party have done an absolutely brilliant job on uh, on getting hundreds of those offshore wind turbines out there it's created a whole new industry Uh, so you know communities that could have collapsed post north sea oil and gas have now got an alternative job and you know and they found a way to get these very highly skilled people to switch over to offshore wind what's exciting about that as you know is because it's had that government policy support Major companies have now invested in even better wind turbines, so we now have a situation where some of these real mega turbines, just one of them can provide power to thirteen to fifteen thousand houses per turbine now, if you think about uh you know the uh, the opportunity for offshore wind around the u k is absolutely enormous, and you know so the potential i think for uh, the exporting of that technology to places like Australia. You know, we could use offshore wind here, but we've also got this huge landmass. You know, we're, we're bigger than Europe here, and yet we've only got 25 million people. A lot of it is desert where you have non-stop sunshine and lots of areas where we have wind. So I think there is, um, you know, if, if we were to do things in the way that the Conservatives have done with offshore wind and apply that to other parts of our economy, I think all of us would do well from following that lead.
0: So I'm going to, it's fabulous to hear. Uh, it's very interesting to see, you know, the UK story sort of reflected through the eyes of, so, of, of, of somebody, you know, from overseas. Um, because, of course, you know, I see the UK almost, even though I'm a, you know, I'm a conservative and I, I should just love what you're saying, but I do see the UK almost as an accidental world champion. You know, we have done that. those extraordinary uh, decarbonization of the we're shutting down the coal, with huge amounts of uh, offshore wind, actually quite a bit of onshore uh, previously, and even solar. Um, but there, are, it's a bit patchy. There are still some things we need to work on. I don't want anybody to get the impression out there that this has been either uh, uh, you know across the board success on every sector, or that it was plain sailing and that everybody's happy with it and that there isn't pushback from segments of the Conservative Party, or in fact of Uh, broader society but we are running out of time and I actually think that that is um, that that's a that's a whole separate um, show to ask the question how come you know the UK without explicitly having this fantastic sort of political consensus that you might have in Germany or Denmark we seem to have outperformed so magnificently on delivering Um, it's been a it's, it's it's definitely Um, There's definitely elements of luck and there's elements of accident to it as well. Uh, But some things that we did right, the carbon floor price, shutting down, the the mandate to shut down coal, the offshore wind, and I think a big, big push into electric vehicles, which is going on um, currently.
1: Um, I was just going to mention that, right? So if you think about the solutions, Britain has provided us with the best case study and role model for offshore wind. But then look at, you know, you mentioned electric cars. Let's look at Norway. Uh, Last month, uh, two-thirds of new cars sold in Norway were electric cars because they've gone and put in place the recharging infrastructure. They've made it easier for people to make that transition. Um, And so I think for every problem we have in every economy of the world, somewhere, some government or some business has come up with a solution that makes financial sense it makes environmental and social sense and so the key thing i think we need to do and this is the job of people like yourself and myself and people watching now we need to find those solutions communicate them get them out there to make sure that everyone is aware of it and that's why you know for me i've got a new series starting called smarter futures and the idea is to interview you know major global business leaders about the sustainability solutions they found and in a compelling, plain English way, explain what they've done, how they've done it. So that way people have a resource to find out if you want to find out more about what the Norwegians have done on electric cars, what the Brits have done on offshore wind or a myriad of other solutions, then at at least have a good starting point where people can find out more about it and then hopefully adapt that and implement it in their own country.
0: John, with that, I'd like to thank you. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, it's inspiring, it's informative, and it's fun. So I hope we can do this in person after COVID and the, uh, the pandemic is over, but I'd like to thank you for joining us today on Cleaning Up.
1: Thanks Michael, thanks for having me, I appreciate it.
0: So that was John D. joining us from Australia, uh, founder of charities, media figure communicator around sustainability and the environment and his core insight that it is businesses that have to be engaged and their contribution to solving environmental problems has to be celebrated. Next week on Cleaning Up, we're gonna get stuck into the heart of the clean energy transition. My guest is a real visionary. For well over a decade, he's been talking about what happens as photovoltaics but also other clean energy technologies, other renewables, batteries and so on, get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper until they pass through a singularity. He teaches at Singularity University. He's also a science fiction writer and a brilliant speaker. I'm gonna really enjoy talking to Ramiz Naam next week, episode 12 of Cleaning Up.